Jingophilia. Bring tea for the man, steak for the son, wine for the woman who made the rain come. Seagulls sing. Hello, fellow Anglophiles. Welcome to season five of Anglophilia. It's not season five. It sure as hell is. God, you're right. Hey, everybody. Yeah, we've done two a year, and this is year three. Wow. So y'all better know by now, I'm Kaylee McMahon. I'm Stephanie Callis. Happy not-quite-anniversary, Stephanie. Happy not-quite-anniversary to you, too. The early days when I was living in a house with two roommates and two dogs and a washing machine that was always on. Plus my computer is also from 2010 and I couldn't even do this (laughs) if I wanted to and I'd have to go into the office. Oh, God, man. It was a pretty buckety office. The buckety office and the terrible recording software that we were using. (laughs) Good times, man. Good times. We've we've come so far. I say that as a plane is flying overhead, so it's possible that the sound for this will still be garbage, but at least we're aware of what the problem is. We're aware of what the problem is, and we're not sounding like robots. Going back and listening to the early episodes and how one of us would just intermittently turn into a robot. So good. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. Oh, today, I just realized, today's my 10-year anniversary of moving to New York. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Thank you. 10 years. It means years. that I've been, like, a grown-up, rent-paying adult for 10 years. It also means that I haven't had a cat live with me in 10 years or had a purple bedroom. So, like, there's downsides, too. But mostly it means that I can call myself a real New Yorker. Uh, with that accent. Okay. So after 10 years, you can call yourself a New Yorker? That's what I've heard. I don't know. Oh. I, I don't. Everyone has different standards. I love, uh, I love those literary quotes that are just like, the second that you see New York City, you belong to it, and it belongs to you, and it is America's womb and America's heart, and you're just kind of going- Ew! A womb and a heart in yeah, one organ? I mean- that's, that's very problematic. I mean, I'm being a bit of a dickhead, but they're, they're kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm being a bit of a womb heart head a womb heart because head. I live in New York. Oh, the womb. Oh my gosh. Oh my. So we're going to be kicking off this season five of Anglophilia by talking about one of my all-time faves, Extras. Woohoo! Extras was created, written, and directed by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, hot off of their international smash hit, The Office. It ran for two seasons from 2005 to 2006 on BBC Two, with an 80-minute Christmas special series finale that aired on BBC One in 2007, and the show aired more or less concurrently in the US on HBO. Extras follows the journey of frustrated, struggling actor Andy Millman, played by Ricky Gervais, who works as a film extra alongside his flaky but lovable best friend Maggie Jacobs, played by Ashley Jensen. Stephen Merchant also appears as Darren Lamb, Andy's clueless agent. In addition to Andy and Maggie's cringeworthy exploits and failures in the respective arenas of show business and dating, each episode features a different special guest star who plays a heightened or fictionalized silly version of him or herself, and the show is also littered with smaller cameo appearances. The show won a Golden Globe for Best Comedy, and Ricky Gervais also took home an Emmy and a BAFTA for his performance. While the creators claim that they didn't set out to write a satire of the film industry, that, as with the office setting in The Office, it was merely meant as a backdrop, with the real focus being on the characters and their relationships, the show does an excellent job of exploring themes of fame, success, ego, artistic integrity, or lack thereof, and the all-too-human tendency to compare oneself to others. And what better way to do that than by setting it in the entertainment industry? I've probably seen this show more times than 
any other show that we've ever talked about on this podcast and probably that we ever will talk about on this podcast. Even more than The Office and Blackadder? That surprises me. Well, not Blackadder. That's way long. But even more than The Office? That surprises me. Even more than The Office? Well, honestly, it's because even if it isn't my absolute favorite, it is one of my favorite shows. But sometimes you revisit things that are maybe like your second favorite more than you revisit your favorite. Because as much as I love The Office, that you have to be in a very specific mood for. It's like a specific kind of like wallowing misery porn and this one because my life doesn't really resemble these characters lives it's something that I, I find more comfortable to be re-watching again and again also just accessibility like it was on HBO Go for however many years it was and then when it stopped it was on Netflix so there's never been a point when I couldn't stream this from my phone mm. at work which is how I watch most things. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. How many times do you think it's been? I don't know. I don't really watch it all through. Like, I've watched the Christmas special a lot, and then there are certain episodes that are favorites here and there that I have seen so many times that I could just recite them along. Hmm. I think I said this about The Office, too. It's one of a few shows that I return to over and over again as comfort viewing, like to sort of realize like, oh, my problems aren't so bad, or this person's going through something that's just as silly as what I'm going through, just on a different scale. Other shows that I do that with, they're they're all kind of similar. I kind of lump them together in my head, but like The Comeback is another one of like, oh, a person who has, you know, 1% show business problems, but they're real to her, and it's got a sort of melancholy vibe. And same thing with BoJack Horseman. Mm. Like, I don't know, I don't find it as comforting to watch like, oh, friends, no one has any real problems I find it very comforting to watch something where like in an episode of extras Andy suffers humiliation after humiliation after humiliation some of which are very much deserved and are caused directly by his actions but I just there's a fun element to the misery I guess that these characters suffer do you agree with that oh I I totally agree that there can be fun to be had watching characters be miserable oh yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. I have really fond memories of the first time that I saw this I was a sophomore in college and I saw it in Florida at my grandfather's house because the whole branch of that family was gathered together for his 75th birthday Mm -hmm. and so the Kate Winslet episode had just aired a couple weeks before and so the whole family sat down and watched it together and like we were just in stitches that is still one of my favorite episodes it's so fucking funny and it was a really nice little intergenerational family moment. That's very cute. Say one more time when this actually debuted. Was it 06? It was 05. So it aired in July, I think, 2005 in the UK. And then it aired in September in the States. And another thing that's interesting is that the order of the episodes is different in the UK or the US. I don't know if you noticed that. But um, on the DVD and also when it was on HBO Go before they took it off for whatever reason, the order of the episodes in the first season is Kate Winslet, Ben Stiller, then Ross Kemp and Vinnie Jones. But for some reason in the British version, which I guess is the first version, Kate Winslet is moved to number three and the others move up. So yeah, well, I'm not sure the, why they changed that's that. That's the order that's on Netflix. So I just kind of accepted it. Yeah, the version that's on Netflix is the British version. There are also, I don't know, I mean, you obviously haven't seen this as many times as I have. So I don't know if you were watching it a lot on HBO or on the DVDs, no. but there are a lot of little references that are like very specific to UK celebrities that wouldn't be known across the pond. So so they, they actually filmed alternate versions. For example, the homeless man in season two, episode two, talking about his aftershaves, he says, apparently Vernon Kay used that. But in the American one, it says, apparently Ryan Seacrest uses that. Ah, that's clever. Yeah. Funnily enough, the first time I saw the show, I was also a sophomore in college. That's why I asked what year it came out. Kaylee's a grade ahead of me, everyone. Um, <laughs> I'm clearly ahead of you in terms of Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant's work. Was, yes. Go on. That's- that's fine. So it was 2006, 
And I had a college roommate. Her father was Welsh and her mother was English. And they just had all kinds of incredible, you know, British comedy stuff at their home. And so she used to go home to San Jose and burn DVDs of things. Like, that's how I saw the Sooty show. That's how I saw Black Books. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember her showing me Ian McKellen, <laughs> which was great for, for its time. And mm -hmm. Kate Winslet. I think it was those two that I saw then. I, I think this might have been my first time watching the entire thing, oh, start wow. to finish. But I've seen, With like, the Ben Stiller one. I've caught episodes here and there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this was a newer one for, for moi. Any overall impressions that you got from watching it straight through this time? Now, this is a good place to start because this is one of your favorite shows. Are you going to dump on and it? And so I don't Is this want the end of our friendship? Well, see, I knew you would take it there, but I, I would, no, I would like you to not, um, because of course, of course. I don't want you to think that by criticizing this show, I am attacking your worldview. Um, I'm not that I, fragile. I truly hope not. Okay. Um, because, yeah, I kind of came away from it thinking that it looked rather dated. I mm -hmm. thought that a lot of the jokes were pretty obvious, mm -hmm. and... I wasn't really that moved or impressed by it. Wow. Okay. Um, I mean, I hear where you're coming from, because I guess if you didn't have, like, a nostalgic love for it that dates back 15 years, right. I mean, this is very much of its time. I will agree with that. Mm -hmm. Both in terms of the style of humor and some of the more politically incorrect gags, and also just in terms of when you have stuff that's that topical, a lot of these celebrities, both the big names and the small names, are dead by now. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's very much of its time and of its place. I get that. Um, but to me, it's one of those things where, you know, you can see the good side or the bad side. And to me, the stuff that is in it that is great is still so great that I am willing to overlook all of its shortcomings. Like, there are some things that just are still funny every single time. You know, whether it's Ricky Gervais making a certain face or whether it's Patrick Stewart saying, and I've, I've seen everything. Like, there are just some things that will never not be funny to me. And then also, just like with The Office, that Christmas special to me is so powerful and so meaningful. And I think it's such a perfect way to end the series. In a way, it sort of, to me at least, elevates the rest of it. Because if it had just been those 12 episodes, it would be like, that's a perfectly fine, charming, funny, for its time, and also maybe still funny today show. But I think that that Christmas special is what cements it and makes it really about something and makes it deserving of its status, to me at least, as a classic. Okay, see, that's... That's interesting because I still kind of don't know what this show is kind of saying. I mean, oh. this can get us into even talking about the structure and the conceit mm -hmm. of the show, which is very, very clever. Like, especially kind mm -hmm. of season one, I do love that it's about background actors who mm -hmm. are, you know, mistreated and they're not where they want to be, but they get to be so close yet so far from what they yeah. truly want. And they get to have these awkward interactions with A-list celebrities, but they know they're not in the same place. I think that's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. And of course, a lot of those celebrity cameos are always going to be funny. Kate Winslet teaching Maggie oh how to, God. you know, talk dirty is always going to be funny. Let's let's make no mistake there. Her boyfriend likes to talk dirty on the phone and she doesn't know what to say to him. Oh, well, yeah, that can be a bit awkward. Well, yeah, why don't you just start off with something light, you know, like, um, I'd love it if you stuck your Willy Wonka between my own palumpas, you know, something a bit fun, a bit jokey. And then you can get more hardcore. Rattle off the old classics, like, 
I'm playing with my dirty pillows. I'm aching for your big purple-headed womb ferret, and then go straight in hard, like get round here because I'm fudding myself stupid and I'm bloody loving it. So you have Andy and Maggie and their friends and they're both background actors, they're extras. And you know, Andy is bitter and misanthropic and selfish and a bitter Betty because he's a background actor and that's great. And then in the very last episode of the first season, we learn that he has written a pilot. And I kind of thought, you have never once mentioned that you're a writer or what your actual dream is. This is brand new information. Hmm. And not only is that brand new information, but suddenly this kind of selfish grumbling dude, which is amusing. I am mm -hmm. never going to say that watching a selfish, you know, asshole isn't funny in, in a comedy. <laughs> yeah. But then he gets what he wants and he sells this pilot to the BBC. But oh no, it's not quite as he wanted it. What a conundrum. Now he's sucked into this world in season two where he's on a stupid BBC comedy that's not what he wanted it to be. But we never know more about what he wanted it to be. We never see him write this thing. We never see him be all that introspective beyond suddenly learning that, you know, he's not happy here and now he's not happy here. And then at the very end of season two, he's going to suddenly become very self-absorbed and selfish and living a life with the elite because he makes friends with one celebrity, Jonathan Ross. Mm -hmm. And then by that Christmas special, going on that didactic rant about fame and, and celebrity in the Big Brother house, I kind of thought... You know, I felt the way that his agent feels when his agent is like, what do you want? Like, I was kind of going, yes, that is my same exact question. What do you mm. want? You have gotten everything that you wanted and we've not seen you making much of an effort beyond sneaking around to actors on the set saying, can I have a line? So I wasn't really sure when I was actually supposed to feel relieved for him or happy for him or disappointed in him because he was very dissatisfied from start to finish. And then for him to suddenly learn, oh, it's all bullshit and I want to leave entertainment anyway, I kind of went, okay, great. Hmm. Well, that's that's hard to argue. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that like you're wrong for having enjoyed it. I'm just saying, you know, I was not as connected to this one as I was with with The Office mm. you know see I I knew that of course of course The Office was going to come up right. because it's the same people and this is a show that is very much in the shadow of their first show which is perfect and highly critically acclaimed and won all of the awards and blah blah and extras is still like highly respected and acclaimed too but it's that uh what they describe as the difficult second album but to me I think that it's sufficiently different enough that I'm not watching this and wishing that it were The Office. It's not like a case where it's the young ones and then Filthy Rich and Catflap where it's like more of the same but slightly different. Like this is a lot more, you know, because it's not a naturalistic mockumentary style, it feels a lot more written. It's a lot more like classically a joke setup and punch and you know you've got the the two leads who are just like that classic comedic duo like a sort of Laurel and Hardy thing that was something that they brought up I think that it's a mistake to compare the two it's kind of like with like a second sibling I don't think that you should compare it to the first sibling but you can see like oh I see both parents in you guys you know what I mean but well, like that's exactly but you have different that's skills exactly what, different... I'm, what I'm doing I'm not trying to compare apples and oranges I, right. I not only bring up The Office because it's made by the same people, but also mm -hmm. because it's another two seasons and a Christmas special where you're watching mm -hmm. people who aren't, quote, likable. I think that yeah. that 
bears mentioning because my point about extras is that for some reason I just couldn't connect with Andy whereas with The Office you also have a bunch of dissatisfied grumbling people but it worked for me. I'm only talking okay. about the sort of character arcs and who learns something, who doesn't, who's easy to watch, who's difficult to watch. It's not because I think they need to be compared like a Young Ones and Filthy. I don't think it's living in the shadow of The Office as much as the two can be talked about in the same discussion because the characters are equally kind of despicable but you don't know why you also are rooting for them. But yeah. I found the characters in The Office just kind of more more easy to, to root for than Andy. Well, I mean, part of that is that as much as I, I actually do sympathize with Andy's plight, particularly in season two, which is odd because that's not at all in any way resembling my life. But obviously, all of it is much less relatable than, say, Tim or even David in The Office, where, oh god, I'm stuck doing this really dreary, horrible dead-end thing probably forever, and there's no joy in it. Whereas at least, like, you know, Andy gets to rub elbows with some celebs and he's making a lot of money and he is getting to do the thing that he loves even if it isn't the exact thing that he wants to do. But I mean, do you really not, let's say that you were Andy Millman, let's say that you had written a show that was going to be an edgy, sort of understated, funny, basically imagine that you had written a pilot that was like The Office, because this seems like the, you know, parallel universe backwards wrong way that The Office could have gone with a lot of network interference. Yes. Imagine that you ended up with When the Whistle Blows. Would you not be embarrassed and sad about it? You might still have a bit more perspective on your life, but wouldn't that pain you to some degree? Abso-freaking-lutely. Well, there you go. I just think it was sort of clunkily done in the show. Oh. Because I wasn't rooting for Andy to get this thing made. I didn't even know he was trying to make it. <laughs> I was just kind of watching yeah. a sort of asshole dude be an amusing asshole. And then this, mm -hmm. it was like, surprise, this is happening. And I went, oh, okay. See, I didn't, I didn't mind. Maybe it's just because like, I knew that it was coming because I've seen this more times than I could count. I think of introducing the pilot thing in episode six of season one. It didn't feel to me like, oh, that's way out of left field or that's like a deus ex machina. I saw it more as like something that we did say about The Office, which is that they don't use anything more than they need. And that's kind of what I was feeling with this. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens off camera that you can just sort of take for granted and then be caught up because we're smart viewers and we can put two and two together. Okay. I think that it would have been a mistake to plant it in episode one, like, oh, I've got this pilot and I'm really looking for, like, I, I don't think that you necessarily needed to have it be breadcrumbs going back. It's not that that one's a difficult one to figure out. I don't need it to be spoon-fed to me. Andy is a mm -hmm. writer. I just didn't know why I was supposed to care. Hmm. I mean, I think that that's fair. I was thinking about that. Like, I don't know why exactly I am rooting for Andy, except for the fact that I really like Ricky Gervais as an actor, and, you know, he's the main character, and, like, of course, I... You know what, actually? I'd like to bring up an excellent character that helps you root for Andy is Greg Lindley-Jones, who is his loathsome, awful rival who starts out as an extra with him and is always kind of gloating and being really nasty and competitive like he, he's the one who starts it he's always the instigator with trying to do the dick measuring of who's had more acting bits here and there and then he ends up becoming very successful by the end he's starring in a film with Clive yeah. Owen he's been at the BAFTAs for best drama he does all of this theater he has the life that Andy thinks that he wants and so I think that he is one of those characters that's just a device to put the main character in perspective, sort of like how Chris Finch humanizes David Brent. I, I find that helpful because it's like, oh, well, Andy might not be saving cats left and right. He's not the nicest person, but at least he has a bit of a soul, even if it's not always there. 
And I also think that... I forget who said this, but this is something about The Simpsons, actually. Someone, maybe it was someone who worked on the show, but it's been an observation that, like, what was it? We love Homer because Marge loves Homer. Or no, wait, I've got it backwards. We love Homer because of how much Homer loves Marge. So to bring it back to Andy, I think that his friendship with Maggie, who is... I want to talk about her because I love her so much. Me too. I like Maggie. that. And also his loyalty to Darren, honestly, until the Christmas special. Darren is the most useless person in the whole universe of okay, the show. I had a hard time with his loyalty to Darren. I was like, why? You clearly can't stand this person. This person is holding you back. Fire this person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, but then we wouldn't have the hilarity of Stephen Merchant playing this amazing character. Okay. I mean, sometimes things in a sitcom just, they happen because that's what needs to happen for the plot, or that's what needs to happen so that this character can stick around, even if it doesn't make sense oh, for this relationship look, to look, 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 I absolutely love the interactions between the two of them, and it's way funnier that he has a completely hapless, clueless agent. That is way yeah. funnier than if he had a great agent, but by the end when he finally is threatening to fire him and you know Darren's looking all sad I kind of thought well yeah you were just jacking off in here a second ago let's get away from this guy <laughs> like it's time <laughs> but then he does it just felt like time he does pull through in the end he does end up getting the meeting with Robert De Niro but Andy has already given a BAFTA nominated performance in When the Whistle Blows <laughs> that is a BAFTA nominated performance Kaylee I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't win. Do you want to talk oh, about yeah. Maggie? Let's or... talk about Maggie okay. because we haven't really talked about her at all. I think that Maggie is so wonderful. She's such a pure soul and she has such a sort of childlike energy. She's very innocent. She's very ignorant. Yes. And that can get her into trouble by being, you know, accidentally racist or homophobic. But like in the way that a child who genuinely didn't understand the way of the world would be. Like it's not a willful ignorance. It's sort of like a Carl Pilkington-esque ignorance, if you know what I mean. It's just... She doesn't know any better. She's not very well educated, but she does have a heart of gold. She really means well. She doesn't have a malicious bone in her body. I love her fashion. She dresses, she's probably in her late 30s, but she dresses not like a teenager in like a overly sexual way, but just lots of colorful sort of whimsical styles. And she has stuffed animals in her house and little twinkly lights. And in at the end of season one, Andy does snap at her when she's accidentally made a mess of things for him at the BBC by being too open about <laughs> sharing Andy's homophobia with the, the gay man who's been getting on Andy's nerves. But he, he snaps at her and urges her to grow up. And there may be something to that, but I also don't think that having adult decor or like straightened hair is what makes a person uh, a grown-up. Can we agree That's... that was... I think that Stephen Virgin and Ricky Gervais are better than that. That typical like, oh, here's a sad song and she's going to clean her apartment and straighten her hair. Like, I, <laughs> I am so done with, oh, a woman is, you know, making a change. She has done something different with her hair and we're going to watch her like mournfully straighten it or mournfully cut it. I just kind of <laughs> thought, oh, come on. On you guys but i mean is that not a thing that women do in real life i thought it was a cliche and a trope because it's because it's a real thing like i'm thinking of i'm thinking of fleabag which we will get to later this season but isn't it usually like a symbolic thing if a woman's like i just walked out on my husband and i'm gonna make a change but so chop it all I, off baby. I, I also no i agree that's true but i also agree there's a way to do it 
That's okay. (laughs) Well, how would you do it? Describe your hair-changing montage that you would write. I knew that I knew that you would challenge me at some point because my criticisms for this show are kind of never-ending. But I don't know. I guess I guess I just kind of thought like, okay, and she's straightening her hair because someone hurled one insult at her. Here we go. Okay, okay. But Maggie um, Maggie does have style. I was like, where does one acquire a turquoise coat anymore or, you know, oh, a yeah. teal sweater, you know, and look at all this butterfly stuff. I want to steal her whole wardrobe. She's got great style and she's so loyal to Andy, but he's also mm-hmm. kind of better to her than the show sort of makes out. Like I thought that, mm-hmm. you know, again, the one time he's partying with celebrities without Maggie, he brings mm-hmm. Maggie to the BAFTAs. He brings Maggie to that exclusive yeah. bar where David Bowie is. Like he's always bringing yeah. Maggie places. There's kind of one time where he's out with Jonathan Ross and can't talk about her bad date and just mm-hmm. the disappointment on her face. It's like, this is the first time this has happened and you understand he's just been on Jonathan Ross. This is a little Devil Wears Prada-ish in the reaction of, <laughs> oh, I've lost my friend. He can't talk to me tonight. Now, of course, yeah. it does get worse from there. It does, But, yes. you know, it's just a little, you know, spoon-fed. It's like, and here is the cataclysmic change and it's happening now when everyone is reacting in step. I see what you're saying. I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I just sort of accept it as like, well, that's what needs to happen for the plot. And so maybe it's it's definitely less organic than some things where it's like, oh, we could be watching real life and that completely makes 100% sense for that character to react in that way. But, you know, in a TV show, especially one with so few episodes, like you need to use a shorthand. You can't show every single time that somebody has let another friend down in order to establish a pattern of how they're slipping away. Or, you know, you can't have a character cough without being like, oh no, she's dying now. You know, you cut out the things that are not expedient for this. I know, but you and I have both definitely mutually made fun of the cough trope. I know, but (laughs) in like a 90 minute movie, Stephanie, you can't have someone just be like, oh, sorry, I just have a tickle in my throat. Carry on. Like, that's just what storytelling is. Whatever. I mean, we have made fun of it, though. No, of course. Of course we have. Yeah. Of course we have. So yeah, I guess I guess that him blowing her off is the friendship equivalent of a cough, yes. of the beginnings of yes, yes, yes. something sinister and infectious. So while Andy's main journey of the whole series is him trying to get a foot in the door of the entertainment industry, and we see his journey from struggling, bitter, misanthropic, extra, toiling in obscurity to this level of fame that he doesn't really want because it's not for what he something that he believes in. Maggie's whole thing seems to be about finding a man but not in a not in like a desperate charlotte york kind of way she's just what i what i admire about maggie is that she has such an open heart and you see her go through probably like 12 or more just bad dates where either she does something cringeworthy to mess it up or the guy reveals himself to be less than ideal but she keeps getting back on that horse and it's uh it's really admirable and and kind of sweet. I love that. I love that she's kind of especially, I mean, you see a lot of bad dates in season two, but season one is where mm-hmm. they're on the sets in the costumes. And yeah, I love kind of how so on good. in plenty of episodes, hot dude enters and she goes, oh, hey, you know, 12 o'clock. And then she finds a way to go freaking talk to him. I love yeah. that. She doesn't yeah. doubt that she is more than capable of walking right the fuck up to a really hot dude and saying, hey. I think that that's part of what makes her so childlike is that no one is more confident than a girl before puberty and no one is less confident than a woman 
during or after puberty and to have that lack of self-consciousness i mean she is sometimes self-conscious like oh i wouldn't know what to say to him i'm not clever enough to engage in this conversation like that's one example but generally what i said about how she's always looking for a boyfriend but she doesn't make a big deal out of it you never hear her complain about being single the way that andy complains about being an extra she just goes out there and does it and she's like well hopefully maybe this will be the one but you never hear her actually say like oh i'm desperate for a man i'm desperate for a husband i really want this relationship to work out no she doesn't talk she does and that's pretty admirable and cool. Um, can I say one thing about Stephen Merchant? Oh, what? <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, in the realm of looking at this show and me saying it looks a little bit dated, like in 2006, I looked at Stephen Merchant and saw Stephen Merchant. In 2020, I look at Stephen Merchant and see Greta Thunberg. <laughs> <laughs> creep for saying that I'm attracted to him because that <laughs> my attraction for him predated actually it predated Greta's life I know so. I know I know oh, oh please 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 this is in no way first of all a dig at either of them nor is it a uh, you can't no, like him anymore because he looks features. like a 16 year old Swedish activist girl but yeah no it hit me uh, two nights ago I was like oh my god and I wrote it down and no, I was oh, not high. That is so funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. But Darren, I think, is one of the great comedic characters. And another character who's not necessarily a lead, because I don't think he appears in every episode, but Sean Williamson as himself, a.k.a. Barry. The two of them together, that's actually maybe my favorite part of the show. Probably more than Maggie or Andy or even any of the big time celebrity cameos. Just that I could watch their whole spinoff forever. I was just going to say the same thing. (laughs) I would watch them as agents and random Sean Williamson being Darren's sort of handyman slash assistant. (laughs) And I would also watch them with the other actor from EastEnders working at the uh, car phone store forever. Oh, car phone where? Their dance. Sean. Sean's dance specifically, I was in pieces. They're so great. Yeah, so I had never heard of EastEnders in 2005. To this day, like, this is really what I think of when I think of that show. I've never seen it. Have you seen it? I've never seen EastEnders. I've never seen Coronation Street. But those are the two shows that I feel like pop up in a lot of things that I watch is some kind of inside reference to those two long-running soap Soap operas. operas. Like, yeah. So, yeah, my only exposure, really, to Sean Williamson is as himself playing this really sad version of himself where he was on EastEnders playing a character called Barry. His agent, for whatever reason, still calls him Barry. Yeah. <laughs> he only refers to him as Barry. Like, the two of them are just this, like, perfect sort of, like, Bert and Ernie couple. There's a mention at one point about how they watched Brokeback Mountain on DVD together. Yes. Like, and you see, oh, there's a moment in the Christmas special where Barry is helping Darren take off his coat that's stuck. Like, he's a little child. The two of them together are just the funniest little duo, and I I just can't get it up. They're, they're my favorite part of the show, yeah. I think I can say that. Yeah, no, they're, they're lovely. Yeah. And the taking off of the shirt is, you know, Andy goes to check in with him, and he witnesses the struggle of taking off the shirt, and I'm like, why is this the last straw? Like, he makes a face and, like, leaves the office, and then he goes with the big-time agent. And I thought, yeah. like, yep, because compared to every other weird-ass thing you have observed these guys doing, I mean, 
in one day you saw both of them trying to whack off to an image to of a, a naked lady on a pen, but nope. A weird kerfuffle with a sweater, that is the final straw. Well, I think in that case, it was more that he had had the opportunity of another agent trying to poach him. Before that, I think that Andy didn't want to do the work of trying to find somebody else. Right. And so he was just comfortable staying with the person that he'd been with forever, just out of habit. But yeah, Barry also, sort of like with Maggie, I think that Darren might be the dumbest character on the show. Like, Andy is a perfect example of another funny straight man. He's totally the black adder of the situation because he's the only one who's kind of always on a level of awareness that the others don't really reach. I mm -hmm. think that Barry is probably second oh, to yeah. that. He definitely has his own shortcomings, but he's the second smartest of the four of them. But Barry and Maggie are both sort of generally dim characters, but who occasionally have these flashes of incredible wisdom that's like where did that come from like maggie is definitely very emotionally intelligent she's certainly the conscience of the show and that's something that definitely comes out in the christmas special which we can talk about in more detail later but darren never has a moment of intelligence or competence or well except for i guess securing that meeting with robert de niro that's the one good thing that he did but he's probably the biggest clown of the whole regular cast right he's purely stupid and i love him <laughs> <laughs> he is purely stupid i I do love him. I do love how, like, Andy kind of, in a way, doesn't even need any help making things worse. He kind of does a really good job of that on his own anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah. Andy's not really good at maneuvering through the world of entertainment. For as much as he does live on planet Earth, maybe more than the other characters do, he does a good enough job of putting his foot in his mouth, but it is kind of remarkable how Maggie and maybe especially Darren are also able to make him look even worse than he already made himself look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we talked about the homophobia in episode six, how he says something in confidence to Maggie about one of the BBC producers that he's stuck working on this show with, and then Maggie blabs it. Or like in season two, where he mistakes a child with Dan for just being a bratty, loud child. And he goes on like a talk show apology tour, but so does Darren. And Darren makes it infinitely worse with his use of yeah. the word mongoloid. I mean, dated. I don't know if people even say that anymore. I don't know if people were saying I mean, that I in think 2007. That, I think that they didn't say it at the time, yeah. which is why it was a joke back then. Yes. Sort of like what Gareth says about like, my dad's very out of touch. He says darkies instead of coloreds. And like, the joke is neither of those was ever okay to say. Yeah. Certainly not in 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And definitely not in 2020. Sorry. Mm -hmm. But it's true. The, the two of them are sort of like the kerosene <laughs> like poured on Andy's like awkward incompetent match. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. So I had mentioned earlier that that there are certain episodes that I will watch just to comfort myself that are usually the most uncomfortable ones, like the ones where it's like, oh, every bad thing is just piling on and on and on. Probably my three most watched episodes apart from the Christmas special are David Bowie, Chris Martin, and Ian McKellen. And those are not necessarily even my favorite episodes or my favorite guest stars. And we can have a whole conversation about like, which are your favorite cameos mm -hmm. and which are your favorite episodes and plot lines. But those are just the ones to me where Andy is just sort of the most crushed and beaten down and sad at the end of the episodes. And right. I don't know why I find that so 
enjoyable. I think I had said of The Office that it's sort of my version of emotional cutting, and this is like a safer version of that. It's a little bit more like schadenfreude, like, oh, I'm glad I'm me and not you. You know what I mean? All right. Now, the Ian McKellen episode, that's in season two. He's already, you know, found his success in a way that he would not have preferred, but he's already found his success on a very popular television show that he kind of hates, but he loves that it's popular. He's been nominated for and lost a BAFTA, so he's he's good. Mm-hmm. He's he's Gucci. People know who he is, and he's invited to star in a play that's directed by Sir Ian McKellen, who's hilarious. I love mm-hmm. the the wizard speech. How do I act so well? What I do is I pretend to be the person I'm portraying in the film or play. Yeah. You're confused. No, it's definitely simple. Uh, case in point, Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson comes from New Zealand, says to me, Sir Ian, I want you to be Gandalf the wizard. And I say to him, you are aware that I am not really a wizard. And he said, yes, I am aware of that. What I want you to do is to use your acting skills to portray the wizard for the duration of the film. So I said, okay. And then I said to myself, hmm. How would I do that? And this is what I did. I imagined what it would be like to be a wizard, and then I pretended and acted in that way on the day. Yeah. And how did I know what to say? The words were written down for me in a script. How did I know where to stand? People told me. If we were to draw a graph of my process, of my method, something like this. Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, action. Wizard, you shall not pass! Cut! Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. And then he's got this kind of homophobic moral dilemma of, oh no, I didn't know my character was going to be gay. And then during one of the performances, a cool guy that he went to school with named Steve Sherwood, who, was that the guy from camping? That was the guy, yeah. Adam from from camping. I mean, fine as hell. But, you know, Steve the cool guy shows up with a bunch of other butch friends and they sit Mm -hmm. in the audience. And so Andy's terrified that not only is he playing this gay character, oh no, but he's also got to do it in front of these, you know, super butch guys who were cool in high school. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at the very last minute, Ian McKellen springs on him. I think that you and the co-star should kiss at the end. And then there's, oh, no, 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 I can't possibly kiss a man. And he actually refuses to do it on stage and ruins the show. Oh, yeah. No, okay, so you and I have talked a good deal on this very podcast and behind the scenes about male privilege. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm just wondering how you feel about watching this guy for two seasons in an hour and 20 minute Christmas special complain nonstop, but always get what he wants and refusing to do what he doesn't want and just kind of being a perpetual like victim, but he doesn't necessarily have that much bad shit heaped upon him that he didn't bring on himself and then to just destroy an Ian McKellen directed production. I just... I just kind of wondered why you still love Andy so much when we've talked all about, you know, men being brats. Well, I didn't say I love Andy so much. I said I love this show so much. Okay, okay. And I like watching Andy suffer. And honestly, I do 
Andy does win me back by the end of the Christmas special, which, as I keep saying, we will get right. to. But, I mean, I, I guess I love Andy in the way that I love a lot of the characters from The Office in that I love watching him. I love watching him squirm. I love watching his funny faces. I love watching his hilarious double takes reacting to somebody more outrageous than him. I think that this is an episode where you're not, you're definitely not meant to agree with his actions. Okay. There are some things, like, I think that the BAFTA episode, he definitely makes some mistakes, but generally he is a victim in that because Darren was the one who came in with the Ray dolls and Maggie was the one who blabbed the thing about him losing his virginity at age 28 to a woman who looked like Ronnie Corbett and then his drunk ex-girlfriend announces it to the whole crowd. Right. Thing upon thing happens to him that's completely against his will. You know, Chris Martin making a really terrible guest appearance on When the Whistle Blows <laughs> as funny. himself. It's so funny. Yeah, just <laughs> stopping by. He's like, what are you doing in a factory in Wigan? It's mental. <laughs> it's just the perfect cheesy sitcom trope of like, why the fuck is that guest star there? It's very dated and very funny. But, you know, he really was adamant about not wanting to do that, but the network made him do it. Basically, he's just kind of a hapless victim for every single thing that happens in that. Mm -hmm. And it just all crescendos to a beautiful catastrophe by the end. But episode five, Sir Ian McKellen, that's one where he is the villain of the episode, I would say, because he's so afraid of appearing gay that he ruins a lot of people's, lo not entire lives, but he ruins a lot of people's, you know, jobs and weeks, months, years, whatever, just because he wants to appear like a macho big shot in front of someone that he admired in school. Yeah. We're not supposed to sympathize with his actions in that one, I don't think. Okay. It's very clear, I think. He acts like a child. It's not like Ian McKellen is being unreasonable by wanting him to do this. No. It's interesting, though, because some of the things that probably, I don't know if it's that they haven't aged well it's not the same thing as like oh that monty python sketch that had blackface in it it's definitely it wouldn't be made today there are certain things that are very politically incorrect in this show but like the episode that's about racism or appearing to be racist <sighs> that's always been my least favorite episode that has not aged well dude it no it, it really hasn't and then also this one i think that it's interesting though that with the homophobia in the samuel l jackson episode their whole name is like oh we don't want to be seen as racist right but in the Syrian mckellen one as opposed to oh we don't want to be seen as homophobic they don't have a problem with that they don't want to be seen as gay right that's the bad thing to me yes and you could see it as like oh well it's a commentary on fragile masculinity and whatever but like i i don't see the don't i think that it's still a very funny episode for a lot of reasons but i think that maybe if i were a gay man i wouldn't necessarily agree with that i mean I well but yeah hold on you oh, you you don't think it's a matter of not having aged well or you do? Well, I think it's just that it's aged. Like, it's not, it wouldn't happen now. Like, I think that when you say that something hasn't aged well, like, there are some things that just are so timeless that they don't age at all. And then there are some things that age super fast if you have something that's, like, very racist, very sexist, very homophobic. And then you have things that just sort of age, like, oh, yep, that feels dated. And I think that I would put this more in the category of, like, yep, that was very much of its time as opposed to, like, whoa, not okay. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it's not, I'm, it doesn't I'm, make me uncomfortable to watch this now. I'm with you. I do think that there are just a lot of things about it that kind of look stale in the year. 2020. Yeah. I think that the Samuel L. Jackson one is a good example, although I had never seen that one and I kind of wonder how I would have felt in 2006. The thing about that episode, the reason that Samuel L. Jackson is my least favorite episode in this, even before thinking about like, you know, woke perspective, whatever, 
The reason that it's the least fun one to me is that Samuel L. Jackson, you know, he's this great star and he doesn't get to spoof himself or do anything particularly fun. No. He's just there to be the black guy to make the white people uncomfortable and aware of their racism. You could have given him something. Like, you know, Kate Winslet, they made up that she's an expert dirty talker. Mm -hmm. That's fucking great. Or Sir Ian McKellen explaining that he doesn't really think that he's a wizard. Like, or, oh my god, Daniel Radcliffe. That... Every person who's ever appeared on this show, like, gets my eternal love and respect for being so game to make fun of themselves. Daniel Radcliffe is probably one of my favorite appearances Mm -hmm. on this whole show. Just give them something, whether it's playing off of a public persona or whether it's going against that or, or just, like, making something, completely making something up. Like, again, Patrick Stewart wanting to see naked ladies in the screenplay that he's written. Yeah. One of my favorites. But then Samuel L. Jackson doesn't get to do anything. And it's really unfortunate that it's such a waste of talent that he doesn't get to be funny or to have any sort of like, oh, this is my weird quirk that you didn't know about me. Well, you nailed it. He's just there to kind of make the white people uncomfortable and to realize that they don't know how to act around black people. Yeah. And so that's disappointing because Samuel L. Jackson is so funny and so game mm-hmm. for a laugh and such a good actor. Um, oh, yeah. But he's used the same exact way that the handsome black guy Maggie goes on a date with is used. Like no no black people in that episode just get to kind of exist. And I will say that Maggie in that episode, I'm going, wow, dude. Like the discovery that she actually has a gollywog doll yeah. I saw it and I went, whoa. And her bizarre, you know, trying to hide it from him because the date's going really well or it's going well enough that he comes back to her house anyway. And the way that she makes the gollywog doll and the other doll that she has like mm-hmm. have sex, like, look, I can't possibly be racist because I want to do this with you. And yeah. when he says, I'm going to leave, I kind of go, good on you. Get the fuck out of mm-hmm. there. Things are getting really yeah. weird. But then he takes it upon himself to be very kind and be like, let's try this yeah. again another time. Time. I kind of thought, why? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah. then when she goes up to him and she gives him that speech about like, we're so different. And she says, I can't stand jazz as mm-hmm. if all black people love jazz. And then her only jazz reference is freaking Louis Armstrong. I just was kind of going, this is stupid. This does not yeah. look good. I mean, what it is, is that the joke is like playing up white people's discomfort with black people and wanting so much not to appear racist and in that process process like stumbling over ourselves and making ourselves look like complete asses and I think that that's fair game but I will say something about this show that I did say of The Office but that I think is doubly true here is that the people of color or the people with disabilities are really just used as props to highlight the people's the white or able-bodied people's discomfort or you know straight people's discomfort with the other whatever the other may be whereas at least because it was a mockumentary like even if the person who was experiencing the racial microaggression or whatever they could like you would sit with them for a moment or maybe they could look at the camera or it would just like linger on their face and even if they didn't get a line you could still be like there's a person in there with a perspective and even if it's not being voiced like I get it I feel you your your point of view is being considered and that's how we're seeing it mm-hmm. whereas this is very much like oh look at me I'm bumbling and I'm so embar- how embarrassing for me yes. that I put my foot in my mouth yeah, yeah. and that's a real thing And I think that it's something that is interesting to explore, but not necessarily at the detriment of hearing other points of view. And, you know, it's tough because these are these guys are, you know, straight, white, able-bodied men. That's right. That's the only perspective that they are writing from. But it's interesting because they could 
I think that they're smart enough that if they wanted to give the characters of color or the disabled characters a little bit more depth, they would be able to do that. But that's not what this show is about. I agree. But there are also just kind of moments that are not meant to be... Well, okay, so so we have the character of Bunny, (laughs) who is a deeply closeted older gentleman who is directing a pantomime that Andy's been cast in (laughs) of Aladdin. And it's very over the top and very, very camp. And Mm -hmm. um, we meet Bunny's daughter, who is a sort of underdeveloped, you know, bizarre, grown-ass woman who Bunny still treats like a little girl. He's very much the stage dad. She's bizarre. I mean, talk about childlike. Like, she kind of makes Maggie, you know, look like a full-grown woman. Completely. But Maggie has the line to Andy, of course she's mental, her dad's a gay. No, no, Andy says that to Maggie. Andy says it to Maggie. Okay, sorry. Of course she's mental, her dad's a gay. And that's just like a casual thing that he says. That's not a centerpiece of look how wrong Andy's being. That's something he casually says because it's something that he believes. Oh, no, completely. You're very And that's like, whoa, all right. Hello, 2005. Yeah. Coincidentally, my mom sent me a New Yorker article this very morning that's like an obituary to a longtime New Yorker contributor and comedian. But this author has a wonderful couple paragraphs about how comedy has to change with the time and that it's not necessarily a matter of people becoming sensitive. It's sort of how maligned groups become more elevated and they want to become part of the audience. And if comedy is about connection, it's less funny when you leave people out. I very much agree with that. Yeah. There are certain episodes where, like I said, the cameo of the special guest star is so wonderful, but then the rest of the episode is maybe not up to that same level. And the Daniel Radcliffe episode is an, is an example of that because oh, I love, yeah. he's so fucking funny. Again, let's play a clip of him being a hilarious little pervy boy who, who wants to be seen as a grown up. Just mwah. Oh God, I've still got these on. I don't, I don't need these. They're just for the character. Even if I did need glass in real life, you know, I, I, I never read. Oh. Hey. What? Fags. Yeah. You smoke, do you? Me? Oh, yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. You? No. (laughs) No, no, no. Good girl, good girl. Very wise. I've got to cut down, really. (coughs) I've done it with a girl. What? I've done it with a girl, intercourse-wise. So if you're looking for... Daniel! Here's my mum. Say they're your fags. What are you doing? Uh, nothing. She's trying to give me fags. What? No, I'm not. You should know better. You're old enough to be his mother. Yeah. And she was trying to have it off with me. Oh, well, of course she was. You're bloody gorgeous. Come on, you. But then another, like, a lesser guest star in that playing himself is Warwick Davis. And he went on to star in yet another Ricky and Stephen created comedy Life's Too Short, which I never actually finished because... It felt too mean-spirited. Like, Mm -hmm. all of the jokes were at the expense of Warwick's size, and none of it seemed like it was from his point of view. It was all just like, well, let's watch the world dump on this person for being a dwarf. And a lot of the humor surrounding Warwick in this, too, it's not as bad as it gets in Life's Too Short, because, like, I can stomach watching the whole episode, and clearly I have done it dozens of times and still Mm -hmm. love it. But, yeah, it's it's pretty unsavory how much... And, like, clearly, I'm sure that he's fine with it and happy to be getting the work and must like these guys to work with them repeatedly. But it just... It leaves a sour taste in my mouth. I'm not a huge fan of that because it seems like he's the butt of the joke even more than Ricky is for being 
ableist, sizist, whatever. And you know what? To put it kind of more gently mm-hmm. in talking about comedy as opposed to just what's okay and what's not okay and what's mean and what's not, I think those moments disappoint me because I think that Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant are smarter than that than yeah. to go for the lowest hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. And so when they do, it kind of feels just extra like, are you serious, dude? Like, you know, again, committing the sin of comparing it to The Office, it's just because I know what they're capable of, which is of surprising me and making me think. And so when you then have these, again, obvious moments that neither surprise me or make me think, except about how stale something looks, that's disappointing because I don't want that to be my takeaway from it. I mean, I will say in the show's defense that, yeah, while there are those uncomfortable moments that haven't really aged well, you said that a lot of the jokes in this are obvious. And I don't necessarily think that that's a problem because there's, just like in The Office, I think that there's a wide range of the type of humor. There's the highbrow and the lowbrow and there's the very obvious jokes and then there's the more subtle stuff and then there's the surprising gut punches that are really dramatic and that do make you think and examine your own life and your own relationship to these issues. I think that it's a mistake to completely discount the elements of The Office that you love that are still present here. Just maybe not, maybe not as surprising because as you said, you know what they're capable of. Like, are you saying that this show never surprised you? As my mother said to me, when I took her to a sketchy neighborhood in Santa Cruz to show her a sketchy apartment I was thinking of renting, I don't love it. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't love the show. I mean, there are totally moments that I found amusing. A lot of them are the celebrity cameos, but emotionally, I was not moved and I didn't see a lot of stuff here that made me think. But that's just, that's just me. And I do not think that my opinion has much of an impact on this show's popularity or lasting popularity at all. But yeah, I just could not, couldn't get behind it. Tell me that you at least liked David Bowie's song, though, because I know you love him. I don't... I love David Bowie, wow. but I was just kind of like, do we have to keep just like, oh, let's improvise a song? Okay. Here's what it was. The David Bowie moment and a lot of other moments in the series made me think of Curb Your Enthusiasm, except being played straight. Okay, yeah, that's fair. So it was extra. That was surprising. Like, I feel like the BAFTA episode could have easily ended with the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme. Oh, yeah. Because everything gets tied up in a bow and the drunk woman, you know, screams into the microphone and calls him a prick, which is great and very, very satisfying. But that easily could have ended with bump, bump, bump. And so similarly to how when I watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, I'm amused, but there are plenty of moments where I'm going, this just doesn't happen. And what? And I can't. I mean, I guess I guess I just don't have a problem with things that are fictional, not Well, and you know that I don't, you know that I don't feel that way either. I am totally happy to watch a giant sandwich fall through the roof of the young one's house. Like, (laughs) yeah, that's. But you know, it's it's kind of (laughs) like when something doesn't work for you, things kind of don't work for you, even things that on paper really should. Hmm. Okay. All right. That's that's interesting. I'd like to bring up American equivalents, actually, because I've, I've talked about how there are certain shows that this kind of reminds me of. And I think that Episodes is a really good equivalent for this. And basically, I use it as an analogy. I had said that the comeback is like the American equivalent of The Office. And I think that Episodes is to extras what the comeback is to The Office. It's a very similar setup. Obviously, these two things, same creators, same cast, some of it, same team. But those two shows were not created or written by the same sets of people. But they did each star a Friends Mm -hmm. alum playing an actor 
either a version of themselves where it's like not really Matt LeBlanc playing Matt LeBlanc, but he's playing an exaggerated version of himself. And the comeback, it's so melancholy and it's so subtle and heartbreaking and it makes you cry as much as it makes you laugh. And also because it's like a mockumentary, you get those quiet moments and those little boring in-between bits, whereas this is a lot more farcical and a lot more, oh, this disastrous thing is happening. Oh, now this disastrous thing is happening. And it's sort of over the top and it's not as believable. It's very much more of a Hollywood satire and a little bit more tongue-in-cheek as opposed to, oh, I'm watching a real person like have a breakdown. And also there's parallels because it's about, you know, a person's creative vision of a show getting bastardized by idiots Mm -hmm. at networks. So the premise of episodes is that this British TV writing couple bring their hit show that has just won a BAFTA to the United States and then it gets completely butchered in translation as so many real life American adaptations do. And in this case, it's interference by the BBC itself that turns Andy's funny, subtle comedy into this overblown monstrosity of a broad sitcom with mm-hmm. wigs and catchphrases. No, that's that's a good point. I still need to watch episodes. You do need to watch episodes. Also, I think that it's funny that that's been a parallel that's been in my head for like at least a couple years. I was like, oh, once we start talking about extras, I definitely want to make the comeback and episodes parallel because I think that it's a really good equivalent. But I only found out a couple days ago that Stephen Merchant is actually dating one of the stars oh. of episodes. So how fitting. Right. Do you want to talk more about celebrity cameos, though? Like, I, I would love to. There's so yeah. many good ones. So what are what are some of your favorites then? George fucking Michael. Oh, yes. Oh, if we're talking about the smaller ones that aren't even part of the titles. Yes, that's a great one. Oh, my God. That might be one of my favorite ones. I mean, rest in peace, George Michael. But Ugh. I mean, talk about a willingness to make fun of yourself and all of your public goof ups like oh yeah and I also love the tie-in with bunny too that feels that feels so funny to me Andy's walking through a park and he comes across bunny sitting on a bench and bunny explains that he's cruising Mm -hmm. from this bench and it's the gay seat or is it the gay bench or the gay (laughs) it's known as the waiting bench the waiting bench yeah I'm here all the time and so you know Andy just kind of sits with him on this bench and then George Michael comes across the bench he's got community service because he and Annie Lennox were tattled on by Sting for trying to throw something away in someone else's bin. But they're all kind of references to just him getting busted, obviously, in public places for having, you know, illicit gay sex. And he looks so handsome and fantastic, and his mm. delivery is so good and natural. I love the George Michael one. It's yeah. perfect little <laughs> That's true. I think that a lot of the more minor celebrity cameos in this, they show an even greater you know willingness to make fun of themselves like a a good sportsmanship than the ones whose names are the titles of the episodes because it's not like anyone's like going oh what a good sport is Kate Winslet for making fun of her notorious dirty talking abilities or Orlando Bloom thinks he's so handsome like it's it's still it's still cute to see them be like oh how nice that they're willing to make fun of themselves but they're not necessarily making fun of themselves for something that's real but with like with George Michael certainly that's based on more truth than say Sir Ian McKellen's or like Hale and Pace in the restaurant like a lot of or or you know even like you said the two EastEnders actors or everybody who's in the Celebrity Big Brother house yeah. the, the willingness to be like yep this is me like I'm very much a has-been and I'm willing to come on to this as a slightly altered version of myself but basically this is what I am known for but I do love in Kate Winslet is also another favorite of mine because her <laughs> delivery of all of the Dirty Talk examples is still just so flat and blasé like she's funny in she's in so that okay episode. so i wrote down this note 
Kate Winslet is so fucking funny. She's one of the funniest guest stars on this whole series. Has she ever been in a comedy? The holiday does not count. I was the holiday does say, not the count. Only thing that w- 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 I watched that movie a few weeks ago. <laughs> not by I myself. You. <laughs> not by myself. I was with a group of people and we were making fun of everything. That's um, fair. That's fair. That's the only way to watch that movie. But like, yeah. she's so funny. How has she not been in more comedies? Well, to she's... her credit, I also kind of screamed because she says that she is doing that, you know, cheesy movie because it takes place during World War II. And she says, you do a Nazi film, you get an Oscar. And she and won. She did. <laughs> she won. No, I know. I know, and then I remember that, like, when Ricky Gervais was, like, hosting the Golden Globes, he was like, see, I told you, like, do a Holocaust movie and you win. Oh, he actually, oh, that's great. Yeah, no, it's true. That was, uh, I saw a special feature that when she filmed that, she was nominated for an Oscar, and the Oscars were, like, maybe a month later or a few weeks later, and they were like, oh, like, I don't want to be mean, but I really hope that she doesn't win that, because then that would change the line, but good that she's well, got one now something that extras really does nail though and this bleeds into the kate winslet conversation like you say why doesn't she do more comedy she's so funny mm-hmm. and to you and me that is so obvious funny mm-hmm. fucking person give that person a great comedy script and you know yeah. br- bring the house down but she's the british girl or she's one of the british girls women but you know she's one of the british girls who does period films and gets nominated for things and she was in titanic Mm -hmm. and to a certain degree i mean andy's new agent says it says you've done a stupid sitcom and you've been this character and that's who you're going to be seen as absolutely for fucking ever you've chosen a very specific path yeah it's very very true it's so painful he says it and i will say i kind of got nervous i was like oh god he's he's fucking right i don't know how this guy's gonna get out of this i did feel for andy in that moment because even though he's been kind of you know doing everything wrong and we only see what we need to your point you know Mm -hmm. we don't see him striving to do much else until until we do but I kind of thought oh fuck he really is gonna be stuck and maybe he hasn't thought about that and I hate how true that is and I think Kate Winslet is an example of that yeah Yeah. that's interesting but yeah so Kate Winslet is a wonderful one I definitely if I haven't already said this I want to play Patrick Stewart's part because that one makes me laugh every single time I'm writing the screenplay and um, I find the whole process absolutely exhilarating what's yours about if you don't want me asking well um, how best to explain it You've seen me in X-Men. Yeah. Uh, The character I am, Professor Charles Xavier. Mm. If you remember, he can control things with the power of his mind. Yeah. Make people do things and see things. So I thought, what if you can do that for real? I mean, not in a comic book world, but in the real world. All right. So in my film, I play a man who controls the world with his mind. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. For instance, um, I'm walking along and um, I see this beautiful girl and I think I'd like to see her naked and so all her clothes fall off. All her clothes fall off? Mm, yes, and she's scrabbling around to get them back on again, but even before she can get her knickers on, I've seen everything. You know, I've seen it all. Okay. It's a comedy, is it? No. It's about what would happen, you know, if these things were possible. What's the story, though? What's the... Well, uh, I do other stuff, like I'm riding my bike in the park. And this policewoman says, Oi, you can't ride your bike on the grass. And I go, Oh, no. And her uniform falls off. And she goes, Ah! And she's trying to cover up. But I've seen everything. Anyway, and I get on my bike, I ride off. On the grass. So, it's mainly you sort of go around seeing ladies' tits? Mainly. 
That is a ridiculous. That's he, ridiculous. He basically I, I, just is, wants to write really a new version of Zapped. <laughs> of what? Zapped. What's the movie? It's an 80s movie starring Scott Bayo where he has telekinesis and he just uses it to open up girls' skirts and shirts. That's the same fucking movie. There's but imagine movie Patrick Stewart that? in that role. Oh my god. Dude, 80s titty comedies. It's a genre, man. That is a genre. Oh my god, that is so delightfully rapey. But oh god, yep. theoretically, there's a way to make that funny. And I think Patrick Stewart talking about his brilliant screenplay, <laughs> wherein that's all that happens, that's the way to do it. Gotta turn oh, things on their heads. No, 100%. Yes. And then also just watching Andy's face reacting to him. I watched the DVDs extras for extras and there were so he cracked so many times there's a lot of bloopers of him laughing during that mm. scene which yes. makes perfect sense it would be impossible um, not to see. already mentioned daniel radcliffe is another favorite and i do love david bowie's song even if you're not super into it i think it gets stuck in my head a lot and it's again it's the perfect like you said sort of curb your enthusiasm-esque culmination of all these different humiliations where first you have him going to the pub and meeting this stalker fan and being like oh shit that's who my audience is yeah. and then he gets like a bad review off a of bouncer and he tries to bribe them and greg of course has a bad review in his coat pocket that he pulls out and rubs in his face and then to be humiliated by like one of the greatest music stars of all time it's great i will say i do love the way david much like kate winslet just performs it straight like, he's actually singing that thing, and he's oh, yeah. playing it completely straight. The Chris Martin one kills me, because oh, yeah. I love that it opens with Andy is clearly filming a PSA about mm -hmm. clean water in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And so it's for charity. It is meant to be mm -hmm. altruistic. And then it's Chris Martin's turn to do it, and Chris Martin doesn't even know what he's doing there. Yeah. And he wants just to talk about, you know, pimping the new Coldplay album. <laughs> and, oh, what's going to be on the screen behind me? Can it be a picture of, of the album? Yeah. I loved that. I want to talk more about the Christmas special. Yeah, let's do it. So the Christmas special, I mean, I think that it's a fair point that you've mentioned a couple times that Andy is not necessarily a good person, however we're defining that. I mean, he, he's just kind of neutral. And so maybe the stakes for you as a viewer are not as high as they're supposed to be. But like, the Christmas special is basically a battle for Andy's soul, yes. if that doesn't sound too melodramatic. And Maggie is absolutely the conscience in this. And then the new character that we meet, Trey Cooper, the flashy agent who replaces Darren, is the devil. I don't mean to say that he's evil or a bad guy, but he's in the sense that he's like Lucifer offering something very appealing. And he is the antagonist who is espousing the worldview that has to be overcome in the end. Which sucks because Trey Cooper is an amalgam of two iconic Kyle MacLachlan characters. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> he just, I bet that his middle name is, oh fuck, what's his name in Showgirls? Oh, I don't even know. I don't know. <laughs> Trey Showgirls Cooper. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, continue. <laughs> oh, God. Now I'm thinking of that crazy dolphin pool sex scene. I gotta oh, watch I was, that movie again, I was again, thinking man. about the lap dance. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, God. So anyway, what's interesting about Trey is that, you know, he comes up to Andy while he's having lunch with Maggie at the Ivy, gives him his card and says, like, if you've got any dead wood in your organization, you have to get rid of it. That's just business. And his whole, his catchphrase, if you can have a catchphrase in a show as mostly naturalistic as this, is life's cruel. Right. And what's crazy is that if you actually look at what he does for Andy, apart from possibly getting him higher wages for subsequent series of his show, 
he's not a better agent than Darren. He's exactly as terrible. Because oh, yeah. in the first 10 minutes of the episode, you hear Darren saying, oh, we've had offers. Doctor Who, Hotel Babylon, Celebrity Brother have been calling. And those are all things that are the exact same things that Trey then pitches to him, but then Andy gets desperate enough to do them. But mm -hmm. it's a bit of a Jerry Maguire thing where, like, if you have fewer clients, like, if you can be the big fish at an agency, if someone like Trey Cooper, who's a big agent with a big agency, multiple people working for him, he has much bigger fish to fry. For example, Greg, whose career has taken off, and he's going to put all of his attention on the people who can make him the most money. And then he'll just quietly collect his 12.5% from everybody else and not put in any sort of work to further his career or to work for him. I and did hate that, how Andy could not get him on the phone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a joke that a friend of mine once told me that becomes funnier the more I learn about show business. A writer comes home and his wife is crying and her clothes are all torn and she's got bruises and, and he says, oh my god, what happened? Were we robbed? And she said, your agent came, he ransacked everything and he brutalized me and he took our child and whatever. And, and then he says, my agent came to my house. <laughs> Joke. That is something. I mean, I know that I asked the question of like, well, but why the fuck is Andy still with Darren? But at the end of the day, he can drop in on Darren anytime and Darren is there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he might be whacking off, but at least they do do a good job of showing, you know, things were simpler. They weren't necessarily better, but they were simpler. You sort of knew a they little bit worse. more where you, yeah. where you stood. Mm -hmm. I also think they do a good job of making sure that we can tell that Trey Cooper while shinier and more of a big time heavy hitter, he's still the one hustling for a job. He's still the one hustling for Andy's business. Andy yeah. does not reach out to him. Trey yeah. sits the fuck down at Andy's fucking table with Maggie, where the two of them are having a lovely time. That's mm -hmm. actually a very good time they're having at yeah. the Ivy. And I do just kind of love watching Ricky Gervais and Ashley Jensen act together, yeah. whether it's in this or Afterlife. I really, mm. really do like them as a pair. They do have a very natural chemistry, and you do believe in their friendship. Yeah. And uh, yeah, then this, this Trey motherfucker comes and interrupts it and says, you need me. But really, it's probably more the other way around. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah. He's just like a shark. He's hunting whatever is there, and he just wants to get as much money as possible without actually doing any of the work. Mm -hmm. And he has this fancy, slick office, and it's all very trendy, and he's well-dressed and everything, but he lies. You see him, he gets a phone call from Richard Curtis, and he blows him off with the exact same excuse that he later gives to Andy, as Andy gets more and more desperate after having quit the sitcom. And, I mean, you see Andy just get completely destroyed by the gap between what he wanted for his life and what he actually has. And Maggie is the one who has to constantly remind him, and he doesn't get it until the end in that speech that you made fun of, but I think that it's actually really great. Okay. Um, she's very wise and realizes, like, look, you're never going to be happy if you're always comparing yourself to other people. And, you know, you complain about how, you know, the sitcom, but it did buy you a house that overlooks Hampstead Heath. You complain that it gets six million viewers, but it's the wrong six million. And like I said, like, I understand where he's coming from, and you do sort of feel his pain that he's having to, again, the presence of Greg is so helpful in contextualizing Andy's shame and pain and everything like on paper yeah he's doing great he's making these guest appearances on these television shows and paying his way through life doing the thing that he loves but he's not getting respect that he wants and thinks that he deserves 
And so then when Greg comes in and is also a little shit about it and is a very poor sport and rubs it all in Andy's face, you do feel that his plight, if you can call it that, is real to him. But then meanwhile, as Andy, his his career is getting maybe not better and better, but staying at the pretty good level that it's at. Meanwhile, Maggie quits being an extra because she has an experience with Clive Owen that is just too demeaning. It's the final straw. And then she becomes a cleaner. She has to downsize from her cute little flat to a much sadder and not at all cute little flat. There's all these montages of seeing her. I find those to be very heartbreaking. There are a lot of really clever little juxtapositions where you'll see her sad little place and then you'll see his amazing, really nice house. They're both having a hard time but in a different way. Like Maggie Mm -hmm. is basically a happy person who kind of like Baldrick or Manuel can be content with nothing. She knows who she is. And even though she hasn't accomplished anything on paper and she is definitely made to feel bad about that and to panic, especially in the last episode of the show, she's not as insecure as Andy is. Andy has everything and is happy with absolutely nothing in his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's just really interesting because that's, that's true in real life too. Your circumstances circumstances and your happiness are two separate matters and they both need tending to and I think that Maggie is the only person on this show except for again maybe Barry who is smart enough to realize that and to know that one does not automatically guarantee the other and vice versa. See, Maggie's speech was the speech that I loved. Oh, yeah. I believed every word of it. I also think that both of them are incredible actors because yeah. even though I don't love Andy's speech at the end, I do think that Ricky Gervais acts the shit out of it. Oh, like, yeah. I, I it, will it always absolutely... makes me cry. I will absolutely give him that. But yeah, her kind of speech to him of you were always a bellyacher and you've been, you know, she's kind of saying everything to him that I've been screaming at the screen. Yeah. Which is like, you kind of got everything and Mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm supposed to feel sorry for you. So it was kind of good that someone that loves and supports him, who he also loves and very much tries to support up until a certain point of his narcissism. I don't know. I enjoyed that speech. It helped me realize I wasn't crazy. I'm like, okay, I've not been missing something. He's the one that's missing something, not no, me. Exactly. I yeah. mean, this the Christmas special in particular is a great case of the main character becoming completely lost and needing to find their way back to some version of reality or find their way back to themselves and to being an okay person not a great person he's still never going to be a saint but he can at least be kind to his friend and to understand that everything surrounding him is bullshit Mm -hmm. and yeah i think that she's absolutely you know maggie is the wise mouthpiece of the show and the creators especially in that speech. But I also really do like, I mean, I remember seeing that in 2007 and being really floored by his speech that he gives on Celebrity Big Brother. And you said that you think that you didn't know what the show was about or how it was relevant to everything else. I'm trying to think back in our conversation earlier, but you said you, you didn't really have a very strong positive reaction to this speech. Well, okay, first of all, to think about the context of the early 2000s, because he gives the example of Lindsay Lohan. Mm-hmm. I know this is a slight diversion, but no, this is me it. attempting to give the speech some credit where it's definitely due, is that I'm sure that for the time, 
everything that he was saying was kind of ramped up a little bit more because I feel like that was when celebrity culture as we know it today was kind of starting to become what it is now. Like this is right before Kim Kardashian's sex tape. I think this was mm. right after Paris Hilton's sex tape. Celebrity was becoming a different thing where you were no longer a celebrity because you were a fucking actor or a pop musician, which yeah. is an actual achievement. Like people were actually becoming famous for flashing their crotches people were becoming mm -hmm. famous for acting a fool you know drunk and high in public or for having sex tapes leaked and it, on the surface it became more obviously about fame than it was about putting something out into the world and as a result of that acquiring fame yeah. so i'm sure that for the time he was you know speaking truth to power in a way that is kind of easy for maybe someone like me to not immediately connect with in 2020 okay. you think back okay you know what in 2007 all of this shit was kind of really coming to the surface in an ugly way so what I had said more toward the beginning of the podcast was that by the end, I just wasn't as impacted by it because I'd been watching this person kind of oscillate back and forth between I don't want any of this and it's all I want. And I never knew what to root for. I never knew if I was supposed to root for him to win the BAFTA or not. So by the end, while it's well written and well delivered, I was just feeling like, well, that's what you're saying today. But you said something different a couple days ago, and I've been watching you just sort of complain about whatever does come your way. You're, you're complaining that you're a background actor, and now you're complaining that you have a hit TV show because your audience is stupid. And now you're complaining that you have to be nice to a background actor on set and that they're coming yeah. up to you. So I just kind of, again, like I said, Trey Cooper asks him, like, dude, what is it that you want? And I thought, please answer this question, because it's what I've been wondering. There are definitely some things that he does in the Christmas special that don't really make any sense, that are just so, he's doing the wrong thing that is so wrong, like blatantly insulting his audience and saying, I don't have to shout a catchphrase for a load of morons and wigs. It's not just that he's a more tactful or kinder person, but he's a smarter person than to insult the people that are directly in front of him. That was very much a plot thing rather than a character thing. Or firing that extra who did the exact same thing that he used yeah. to do. I mean, that was just him lashing out because he was insecure. And there are a lot of inconsistencies. You're right that he one second wants to be famous and the other second doesn't want to be famous for the sake of fame. But I think that that's the whole point. That's the conflict of the special. It's, the, it's his internal struggle, you know, man versus himself. Because, you know, sometimes human desires can be complex and they can conflict with each other. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that that's a strength of the material, not a weakness. But I think that the final speech, I think that that is the side that he's always actually been on. He just was so desperate for a while because that was the only way that he thought was the way to success because if you have a very narrow definition of success and success is more numbers and more recognition and more fame and more people talking about you and knowing who you are then yeah it's easy to fall into that trap that you know all of the people in the celebrity big brother house with him having to always be on right. where being famous is a full-time job it's not your job isn't to be an actor or a singer or a dancer your job is to be a celebrity and that is exhausting. And that is also something that I think has become even more relevant with social media mm -hmm. now, 
because this was like before that had really taken off. To me, that speech about how, you know, everything has to be like, oh, I better videotape the birth. Oh, it's the most important day of my life. Better have there be a press tent at my wedding. I gotta have a press tent. These are all things that now, because of the ease of smartphones and Instagram and Twitter and everything, that even random nobodies feel the pressure to always be performing and always be painting this picture-perfect life for everybody else to see and be jealous of and compare themselves. It's like, it's kind of like a defense in a way because I'm a very passive social media user. I don't very often post, but I do frequently, if bored, check things and then feel bad about myself because my life is not living up to the glamorous things that other people are posting. It's the whole thing, I forget what the quote is, but it's something like you're comparing your behind the scenes to everybody else's highlight reel. It's uh, I've heard that recently as well. I also forgot who said it. I think a lot of people post things in order to not feel bad about themselves because if they don't post things, if they're just receiving everybody else's amazing vacation snapshots and engagement photo shoots and whatever, that's a pretty quick way to be miserable. And, you know, comparing yourself to others, it's a trap that so many of us fall into. And that's the thing for me that hits home really hard in the Christmas special. His relationship with his, I wouldn't even really call him a frenemy, his shitty rival Greg from yeah. the very beginning and watching their different trajectories. I I find that to be very powerful because I certainly have people whose careers I'm jealous of who I think don't deserve to have success because they're not as talented or dedicated or whatever and they didn't earn it, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it doesn't matter. Keep your eyes on your own paper and do your own work and someone else's fame shouldn't be a threat to you. No. But I mean, to me, <laughs> the, the thing about Andy's speech at the end, the thing that really felt like an indictment at the time when I was watching this in 2007 was his line about how the Victorian freak show never went away, except now it's called the X Factor oh, yeah. or Big Brother, where in the preliminary rounds, we wheel out the bewildered to be sniggered at by multimillionaires. That was when I was like, oh, shit. I definitely laughed at a lot of mentally ill people back when I was 14 and watching the first season of American Idol. American Idol was the equivalent that they used in the HBO version for that. And I was like, oh yeah, shit. Simon Cowell's being a dick to people who have nothing and who are clearly very not well. That element of American Idol kind of always made me uncomfortable. Well, you were a better person at 14 than I was. Clearly. No, 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 no. I, but I wasn't watching it at 14, to oh, okay. be perfectly honest with you. I was watching it more mm -hmm. at like 17 because American Idol okay. was never going to be my cup of tea. But yeah, even at the time I was kind of going, I don't understand what's happening with William Hung. But again, it's a well-written speech. It just didn't feel like it was part of the series that I'd been watching. Does that make sense? Hmm. It was more like that. It's not that it's a bad speech, badly written, badly performed, nothing like that. And it's a point I agree with. It just didn't see like that could possibly have come from Andy. Interesting. I think for me, what's so interesting about this show is that every season, despite obviously being part of a continuous narrative, is so different. I wouldn't say that it's the same thing as Blackadder where you have completely different characters well, no. in different eras. Yeah. But like the but the tone, you know, obviously changed from Blackadder season one to season four a lot. And each season was sort of about something different. Right. And so in this, you know, the first one, he's just trying to get his foot in the door. He's just an extra. And then in the second season, things sufficiently change where like his, his life is turned upside down, but he's still chasing this other thing. And then in the Christmas special, they really zero in on him wanting so desperately to be respected, but then also fearing being obsolete and forgotten once the thing that he has but hates and resents, once that's taken away from him, then he's just scrambling to get his face out there in any way that he yeah. can. 
and I think that it's interesting the way that the show evolves. Like, you wouldn't necessarily know from the first episode that that is how the series would conclude with him being this successful person who has, like, a, a whole moral crisis mm-hmm. on, on live television. Right. Um, oh, I will say the part of the speech I do love is when he just looks mm-hmm. straight at the camera and apologizes to Maggie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was very human that, and wonderful. That's the, part that, yeah. that's the part that makes me cry. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, when I first saw this, that was, like I said, comparing this to The Office, apples and oranges, but I think that this Christmas special is just as strong and just as satisfying for me as The Office one is, because that moment when he looks into the camera with tears in his eyes and says, I'd be the penguin, and then you see her laugh crying on her couch at home, that to me is the equivalent of Tim and Don kissing. Even though it's not a romantic thing, I like that Andy and Maggie, it's never even remotely teased that they could be anything but platonic. I would be really pissed off if they did that. That would be like if Peggy and Don hooked up. Like, no, I don't want that. I just like that you're friends and that's fine. Well, she does have the line at one of the finales where she talks about like, well, let's say that nothing works out for X amount of more years. Should we just move in together? And yeah. you kind of... But that's still not a sexual thing, It's still not a sexual thing. I have but friends that I have that deal you with. You don't know if it's meant to be, are we giving up romantically and therefore moving in together? Or are we just giving up on living alone and having no one so we're going to move in with each other for comfort but I like that that's not stated I like that it's still ambiguous but that's all they really give us I do like that I like that too Mm -hmm. I think that it would be too obvious but also at the same time unearned for them to suddenly be like oh let's just couple these two up together because that would solve all their problems and then they'll be in love and like I don't I don't ever want to see them completely unearned and I do like how you know during the couple of moments like when Darren reveals that he wants to go on a date with Maggie <laughs> and Andy's kind of going, no, what? I like that it doesn't then turn into a jealousy thing. It's more just mm-hmm. genuinely, no, I think my friend Maggie deserves better than that. It's not, no, she's yeah. mine. But I also love how he's like, oh, she's hit rock bottom. And Darren goes, yes, she has. <laughs> <laughs> he's so happy about it. But that's another thing that's interesting is that Maggie and Darren, as we've said, are kind of the two dumbest people of the main cast. And they're the ones who are sort of constantly getting Andy into worse and worse scrapes than he could get into on his own. And, you know, it's not until, what, the 11th episode that they go on a date? And it's like, oh, but, like, this makes so much sense. Like, of course, they're, you just have never really seen them in a scene they're together. A but great it's time. like, how have they not come to this conclusion earlier? Like, they're so similar. And then, like, they're too similar. And that's why it shouldn't ever work out. Yeah, but, um, yeah. I, will, I will also say a part of the show that really mm-hmm. made me laugh just with awful recognition. And I know that we talked about this when we talked about the relationship between Saffron and her awful fiancé and the mm-hmm. last shout in Abfab was when Adam from Camping, Steve, mm-hmm. goes to to visit Andy on the set and he's hot and smooth and he just walks in you know sexy mm-hmm. alpha male and he says to Andy about Maggie what's she doing here with you she's too pretty she must be a prostitute or something oh, yeah. like it's such an insult it's hugely sexist but the way Maggie just looks at him and smiles and just says Haha, pretty girl like oh this, yeah. <laughs> this really sexy dude just validated my attractiveness and it doesn't matter that he also did it by insulting me I thought oh no don't we all just kind of do that sometimes we could all be oh, so no, guilty completely. of that level of pathetic 100 percent. 
I went, oh, girl, I know. It's terrible. (laughs) We want to do a shag, Mary kill? Yeah, I I was thinking last night. I didn't know what the terms were going to be. I mean, I know who two of the the three should be. I think the main three. We could also do an alternative one where we throw in Barry in the mix. But I think Andy, Maggie, and Darren. Andy, Maggie, and Darren. Okay, I didn't know if we were going to do Andy, Barry, Darren. Oh. Or Andy, Greg, Darren. Well, kill Greg no matter what. He's not invited to anything. Of course. Let's do Andy, Maggie, Darren. Okay. And then... If we want to do an alternate version, we can go from there. Goodness. Yeah, this is tough. There are so many ways that this could go. There are so many ways that it could go. Because while I've said over and over again that it was kind of hard for me to know how I was supposed to root for Andy, he is mostly a good friend to Maggie. There are ways in the later seasons in the Christmas special that he lets her down, but I think it's overdone and he does make a comparatively quick turnaround back to being a yeah. good friend i feel like i would probably have to marry andy just because i is as much as i don't really want to marry him and love the other two characters too i couldn't be married to anyone that stupid i would be just so constantly frustrated if i were married to either maggie or darren like i need someone who is an equal adult with me like, I need to be the kid sometimes. Yeah, no, I hear what you mean by that. I guess it comes down to the choice of am I stuck with stupid or am I stuck with just always such a fucking complainer? Yeah, you know what? It's the Ted versus Dougal conundrum. I, I think that back then I did marry Dougal, but that's because I had a big crush on Dougal. I don't have a big crush on anybody here. I mean, Stephen Merchant, he's a total babe, but... I shouldn't like, be here is... now. No, sorry. <laughs> How dare you? I should be in school on the other side of the ocean. (laughs) How dare you? Oh my god. I don't know if you ruined him or made him seem like more credible somehow. (laughs) It gives him a bit of gravitas that the character is lacking. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, you know, and then there's also the matter of if <laughs> if you're if you <laughs> can't get past this. if you're going to choose marrying one of the stupid characters, it's sort of like would it be better to go with the woman of the two because I don't know. That's just kind of a built-in nice roommate situation. Or do I go with the stupid who is a man because I sleep with men? I don't know what would be worse. uh... I mean, Darren is the one that I would least want to marry because he brings nothing to a relationship except for his sexy, sexy body, but he can bring that to the fucking option. Maggie is at least a very supportive person. She has, you know, fun home decor minus her gollywog doll. We could throw that out together. That'd be fine. But she, like I said, she has these little flashes of wisdom. And so I might not be completely bored with her, but I, I couldn't see myself like staring across the breakfast table at this tall lump of a man who has no, like I couldn't make conversation with him. Right. Because he's just not even on the level of, I don't know. I think that Maggie would be probably the best emotional partner to align one's life with. But Andy, I mean, I probably sound like a way bigger gold digger than I am on this podcast because I'm always thinking like, oh, well, like maybe I'd marry this character for money. That's not what I'm looking for in my real life. But like, Mm. you know, marrying someone who doesn't really make any money and lives in a really sad place with a dead spider on the wall or 
marrying a TV star who's like doing all right for himself and could support me. That's not the worst life. You're right. And I know that we've, I I have definitely made the mistake on this podcast of saying like, oh, well, I could marry Lister. Maybe he'll outgrow all of his horrible qualities. Um, But when it comes to the question of marrying Andy, to his credit, I mean, Maggie makes that speech to him and he doesn't listen immediately, but it clearly does get through to him. And he does see the error of his ways. He does. The whole thing does get wrapped up in a pretty bow in the end. He and Maggie Mm -hmm. ride off into the sunset, not caring where they're going and the fun adventure can begin because he realizes that Maggie is kind of the best thing that's happening in his life. Absolutely. So he does have a sort of, you know, again, he's on planet Earth, so maybe I have to marry Andy as well, and then I just decide who I'd rather... Here's where it gets sticky, though, because if Maggie is Andy's better half who makes him a better man, and we've decided that we're both going to marry Andy... We can't kill her because then that kills the part of him that is open to changing and being a nice person. But Um, I could give him that speech. Well, okay, fair enough. But I, I just don't really have the heart to kill Maggie. I don't know if it would be that terrible to kill Maggie, though, because at a certain point, all she does is sadly clean while listening to Kate Bush and looking sad. Wow, that seems like very classist of you to say. What do you... Uh, like, I'm not all, saying that... If all she does that, is she's a cleaner. I'm not saying that all cleaners may as well die. I'm saying she's miserable. You know what? It breaks my heart to kill Maggie, but I might, I might have to do that just because... I don't know, I guess, because I'd rather fuck Darren because I'm shallow. Yeah, same. So now if we throw Barry into the mix, how is that? Oh, work? I'm do marrying I do Barry. Four of them? <laughs> really? I am marrying Barry, shagging Andy, killing Darren. Wait, no, I'm oh, sorry. No, okay. I am I am marrying Barry, killing Andy, shagging Darren. Why do you want to marry Barry? Because he's so I mean, apart so from the fact funny. that he's just lovely. <laughs> he's so funny and I, I like his sexy dance. And he's also, I mean, of course you do. He is so, so, so funny. I think he's the perfect sort of middle ground of crazy, like between Mm. Darren and Andy. If you know, if you put them kind of as opposite ends of the spectrum where Darren is in this la la land and Andy is just a miserable earth dweller, I feel like Barry Mm -hmm. is kind of the perfect midpoint. He's still whimsical and dancing in a weird way in the car phone place, but he also clearly was at least capable enough of having a career on EastEnders. And, um, yeah. you know, functions as a person. So, yep, no questions oh, wow. asked. Yeah. I don't know, man. I feel like if we include Maggie in this, I feel like Barry might be a fun roommate. Mm. But, oh, I but would. But also, I feel like Maggie might be a fun I would roommate, roommate with know. Maggie, you know, throwing away the gollywog, but she can do all the other decorating. I feel like she... Huh. So many of the people in the show are just one little thing away from getting to where they sort of need to be. Maggie is one really substantial paycheck away from not having to live in fear of losing everything and not feeling like an adult. She's Mm -hmm. childish and kind of dumb, but at the end of the day, you know, she's the one who points out to Andy, you're never going to be happy because you're never going to be famous enough because you're not cool Mm -hmm. with yourself. That is very wise. And I feel like, yeah, she's just kind of one good thing away from being a bit more settled. And Darren might be one pep talk and one client away from being a little bit more serious. He'll still have all of his other idiosyncrasies, but like get out of that weird office that's sort of falling apart. You know, hire an actual assistant 
assistant that's not Barry. And, you know, Andy apparently is one big pep talk away from becoming a better person. (laughs) And I feel like that's true down the line. Everybody is sort of one extra good thing or good reality check away from being their better selves. And so I wonder if if I could be that for Maggie. (laughs) Let's split the rent. And you can afford an acting class. And you can continue trying to make your dreams come true. What's interesting, though, is that she doesn't seem to have any acting ambitions. Like, she has that one friend during the Orlando Bloom episode, which is also very funny. There's that one friend who's sort of like her Greg Lindley Jones. Because she's a woman, it's sort of more subtle rather than just being like, hey, I'm going to blatantly be a shit to your face. It's like, oh, I have this friend who, does she have to be good looking? It's just all these sort of backhanded things that she says, trying to set her up. It's like, oh, it's just not your lucky day. But she says, or maybe it's not even in that episode. There are definitely times where someone says, are you an actress? Oh, no, I'm not an actress. I'm just an extra. And I don't know whether that's her humility, whereas Andy, when he is making all of his money just from being an extra, he says, oh, but I'm still an actor. Mm -hmm. That might be just like a man-woman thing, or it might be a Maggie-Andy thing. Or maybe she just really... This is the only thing that she knows how to do. She doesn't ever seem to want to have a line. She's not hustling for anything except to be in that scene with Clive Owen, poor baby. This just seems to be the one thing that she's capable of doing is like standing in period garb and sometimes getting her face in a shot and acting silently. Well, that might also be a a writing issue they're kind of neglecting to give Maggie any aspirations. I don't think that that's a writing issue because I think that Maggie, unlike a lot of, certainly unlike a lot of female characters written by male writers, I think that she does have a personality and an interiority. And I think that part of what is fundamental to her character is her aimlessness and the fact that she's sort of like this kind of floating free spirit with this childlike innocence. And she's just sort of letting her life happen without really driving it at all. Like she does go out on dates a lot. She's very proactive about trying to find a life partner or at least someone to hang out with for a while. But you hear her parents on her answering machine saying, like, we heard about Andy's show and we were just wondering if you might like to do something with your life. And, like, that's a very on-the-nose sort of, like, over-the-top thing to say. But maybe not in so many words, but a lot of parents do put that kind of pressure on their child. Like, oh, you should, we're disappointed that your life hasn't turned out into anything else. But I think that it would be weird for that character to be like, oh, well, but what I really want to do is be a veterinarian or what I really want to do is to be a director. Like, I think that there are people who don't know what they want to do and don't have any sort of driving passion in their lives. And I I think it's a weird thing that we should think that everyone should even need it. I, it's a very, I don't disagree in yeah, a real world I mean, sense. Like there are people who just, you know, their job doesn't define them and they collect their paycheck and then they go home and then they sit in front of the television and eat their tea or whatever. Like I don't, I think that it's a very capitalist sort of thing of like, oh, well, like, but what do you really want to do? What is the thing, the thing that's your passion that's going to make you all of your money or not that's your side hustle or the thing that you make all of your money in order to fuel that thing? Like what, what you want to be something more than what you are. And not everyone has that. I don't disagree, and, I, and I'm glad you said that, but I do think that we're filling in those blanks ourselves. What do you mean? I mean that in a show where everything is so very much spelled out as far as what the protagonist is thinking and feeling and wanting mm-hmm. and not wanting and getting angry at and, and not getting angry at, yeah. I think that for us to really kind of not know very much at all about the second most prominent characters in her life, that's us filling in the blanks. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I mean, I think that the only thing that we really know about Andy is that he wants to be an actor. As you pointed out, you don't even know that he's written a pilot until the sixth episode. Again, it's one of those things where the writing is very economical and you don't know anything. Like, you don't know anything about their family. You know that Maggie's parents are alive and you know that neither of them has a sister. Sure. But but you don't know anything about their upbringing or their friends outside of each other, except that clearly Andy doesn't have any. You know that Andy lost his virginity to a woman that looks like Ronnie Corbett, but you don't know anything about his personal life or relationships beyond that. He doesn't really seem to ever pursue romance, except for in a couple of episodes, but it's never really a priority for him. Generally, it seems like the two things that everybody wants, or you know, most everybody wants, are to have a fulfilling relationship and a fulfilling career, whatever that might be, some sort of passion that they can be proud of and pursue. And I think that it's interesting that this show has sort of split those two things, and each of the two main characters is the embodiment of one. Like, Andy he doesn't really care about his personal life that much except for as it you know embarrasses him periodically but he's not like oh and I'm also so lonely he really just represents that show business ambition and the desire to be somebody and to be respected whatever that means whereas Maggie just is always looking for a boyfriend and I think that it's kind of fine and kind of interesting that neither of them really shows much interest in the other thing I mean that's a little gendered though maybe that's all. I mean, comparatively speaking, she is a better female character than we often get. I'm just paying attention to the fact that the lead female character has no ambition. That is an interesting point. And you're right that there are certainly a lot of uh, a lot of way worse written shows than this one where you don't know anything about the woman except like, oh, she's just a love object for the main guy, whatever. Yeah. Even Don Tinsley, who is mostly that role, like she, you get to find out that she wants to be an illustrator in season two. But I do think it's so rare that you see a character that doesn't have some sort of ambition that we hear about. I think that there are people out there who are like that, and I think that it's interesting. I, I, I don't know. I, I like that she doesn't have that. No, I, I like it too. And I guess, again, her speech to Andy, it's very, very good. And she very much points out, you're not going to be happy with all this frivolous shit because you are not happy. And she, you know, she speaks with such conviction and she says it so eloquently and so well. And she's not just a bumbling idiot. She has many, mm-hmm. many moments where that's how she appears. And she's oh, yes. very simple. But like, I think about one of my favorite moments in, in Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion is Michelle's speech to Romy about how Mm. you know you're the one who's been talking nonstop about how awful high school was and about how miserable we both were but uh, up until you became hyper focused on this I thought high school was a blast and stop trying to you know make it out to be so much worse than it really was and you don't have anything to prove to these people I guess I wanted one moment for Maggie to kind of say and P.S. You often kind of make me miserable because I'm over here just trying to enjoy my goddamn life and letting the chips fall where they may and you know, getting through it as so many people do. Your problem is not a real problem. People wish they had your problem. You know, I didn't hate this show and I didn't hate watching it, but I appreciated you letting me express how I felt about it without either of us taking anything personally because I sort of feel like when you're defending something and I don't mean you I mean you know myself too Mm -hmm. like when I hear anybody say a bad word about Adam Sandler despite the fact that I know that there are a lot of things they are very much right about but I like become that 10 year old girl in love with him again where I'm like what the fuck did you say and I will (laughs) I will go toe to toe with somebody 
And I've sort of been taking a look at myself and my tendency to do that. It was definitely the person mm-hmm. I was 10 years ago. And, yeah. you know, I've just been trying to take a look at ways in which I know that I myself have changed. And definitely 10 years ago, if somebody were to say, I watched Father Ted and I didn't get it, I would have barfed and then like screamed at that person. <laughs> and it's it's <laughs> nice to know I'm I'm not that person anymore. And I appreciate you not being that person either you know because I, mean, I was no, I, re- I was really nervous about this conversation because I knew oh no. I was like I'm gonna have to tell somebody who I love and respect and whose taste I respect and whose taste often falls in a crazy alliance with mine I just kind of thought oh no I'm gonna have to tell her I don't like one of your favorite shows and as a fellow consumer of media and as someone mm-hmm. who you know at least a decade ago would like live and die you know by <laughs> by my love for like a show praise be we are in our 30s <laughs> you know that, that's I mean, yeah. all yeah. look i i didn't write this show i fucking wish i did because I, I think it's brilliant it too even if it was just exactly as it currently is written but it was like oh good job kaylee i did that like i would feel no regrets i still think that it holds up despite the flaws that you have pointed out that i do agree with it's really just a matter of which one do you give more weight to and maybe it's partly nostalgia for me and the fact that it's been such a comfort in the 15 years since i first started watching it I think that the comedy is so great. I think that everyone who acts in it, whether they're a big name star who just came in for one day of shooting or whether they're part of the main cast, I think that so many of the elements are so wonderful. And with the exception of a few sort of cringy things that might not hold up in our new politically correct woke era, I think that this does and probably hopefully will continue to stand the test of time. I think that the finale is lovely. I don't know. I just, uh, I still, I still really love this show. And yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna berate you for not loving it with the same fervor that I do. However, I will say that if you suddenly someday decide that you prefer the American office to the British office, then our friendship is over and this podcast is over. Um, if I ever decided that, I think the last person I would ever tell is you. That's a good choice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because I have half a brain. (laughs) So. There you go. (laughs) God. Hey, Kaylee, guess what? I decided that I like the American office way better. Kaylee, how dare you? (laughs) I shouldn't be here right now. didn't see that coming and that's what made it so good (laughs) times change people comedy changes things become funny for different reasons (laughs) yes oh man that's so good how long were you sitting on that (laughs) since friday night since Friday night. I, no, I mean that specific one. Oh, I guess probably oh, oh, not it, that it, long. It just, it just came to me in, in the moment because, as, as you'll understand, brilliant. we're both very clever. Um, oh, my God. What are we watching next week, fam? Next week, we're going to be discussing chewing gum. <gasps> Ooh, excellent. So, yeah, so just like with this show, which I really hope you've watched by now, it's all on Netflix. So go binge that. And uh, we'll we'll see you next time. Yeah, um, this season we're not necessarily themed. We are just going for here's a group of six shows that we love and have watched and love talking about. So well, that some of us love and some of us merely like. But uh, I'm not gonna hold that against you. I'm really not. <laughs> I didn't say I liked it. Oh, how dare you! 